welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Nick Marr. I'm a sophomore history and political science major at Notre Dame, and I'm here today with Professor John Soares. He specializes in Cold War history and most recently has been working on sport and the Cold War. So I have some questions going off that topic. Uh, you've done significant research on sports, specifically hockey, during the Cold War. This must have led to some interesting insights into the major players of the Cold War. Can you summarize some of those insights? <clears throat> yeah, Nick, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of times when people hear about sport in the Cold War, they tend to think it's either something that historians paid attention to after the fact, uh, or that it was kind of a symbolic uh, issue for the powers involved. Uh, and we know from looking at what was going on in Washington, in Ottawa, in other Cold War capitals at the time, that the governments were taking sports seriously uh, as a measure of the relative strength of communist and capitalist democratic societies. Uh, to give you an example of the kind of things we found, during the 1962 uh, World Championships in ice hockey, the United States was defeated by Sweden 17 to 2. And you heard that right, it was 17 to 2, which you're probably aware is an epic route for a hockey team. Uh, and President Kennedy responded to this uh, in a phone call that is recorded. Uh, and he calls an aide and talks about how, how bad this is. One of his lines is, Christ, who are we sending over there, girls? Uh, and he wants to know who's the organization sending teams to the world championships in hockey uh, and what are their prospects for future uh, tournaments and particularly you're looking toward 1964 and the Winter Olympics. And he gets a memo the next day explaining to him what was going on, why the 19, uh, the 63 world championships, I think I earlier said 62, 63 in Stockholm. Uh, and he gets an explanation. 63 is a bad year. Non-Olympic years tend to be bad years because the college players and the amateurs, at this point you only have a six-team NHL, so there's very few pros who are American, but the best American amateurs outside of college all have jobs. The college kids can't leave school. The guys who have jobs can't leave their jobs in a non-Olympic year. In an Olympic year, they'll make the sacrifice. So going forward, looking at the 1964 uh, Olympics, the U.S. hockey guys are optimistic. We have a great coach. We'll have some good players. Uh, this should work out, but future non-Olympic years might be an issue. But the fact was you had John F. Kennedy making a phone call, uh, and you had his aide who took the phone call, getting on the issue and delivering a response the next day because President Kennedy believed it was important. Uh, to have good representation in your sports teams at the Olympics. Uh, in Canada, where hockey is the national game, diplomats understood that hockey was crucial to Canada's international image. So if you're interested in sports, and most of the years I look at in the United States, and you want to know what's going on in government files, a lot of times you go to the cultural file and there's you know, a random document here and there uh, in whatever period you're looking at. Certain issues got more focused attention. Uh, but in Canada, every year, 
you had entire files full of documents just on foreign policy in Canada. And by the late 60s or early 70s, Canada was doing entire files on hockey broken down by country. Wow. So there's a hockey relations with the Soviet Union file, a hockey relations <laughs> with, Can with Sweden file, hockey Czechoslovakia file. So the governments are paying attention to this. Uh, it matters to them. It's important to them. More so to Canada on a day-by-day -day situation. Uh, but in terms of the United States, American leaders are still paying attention to sports in general, to hockey in particular. And in terms of hockey, because it is a team game with objective scoring played in almost all of the NATO democracies, almost all of the Warsaw Pact members, Japan, and the major European neutrals, and I'm talking about Switzerland, Sweden, and Austria, uh, in many of the countries that were crucial to the course and outcome of the Cold War, hockey was a sport where they were following it at the World Championships and at the Olympics. And it's a team sport, and team sports typically are able to motivate interest on a widespread basis, more so than individual sports. Depends on the country and the sport. Um, but team countries, people tend to gravitate toward their national or Olympic team, particularly in team sports. The other thing about hockey is it has objective scoring. Uh, so you don't, nobody's saying, well, we would have done better, but we got a, a raw deal from the judges. So, you know, you're scoring goals or you're not. And when you have two societies whose leaders are both making the case, we have very different ways of politically, socially, and economically organizing societies. And we believe our approach does the best job of providing a high quality of life for our people, the opportunity to develop their talents, their interests, their aptitudes. Uh, a sports competition with objective scoring is very useful as a way uh, to measure how the two societies are doing. Uh, and because the hockey program in the Soviet Union was relatively new, particularly compared to Canada. They could argue, look at how dramatically we've been able to make progress in such a relatively short period of time. Uh, and that's something I can explain to you more if, if it's of interest. That's, uh, that's really interesting that they were, they were fascinated by that. Uh, does that. So does that connect to... Um, deterrence in general, or in what ways could studying hockey and those relationships connect to deterrence, which was a central theme to U.S. foreign policy and it seems to Soviet foreign policy as well? Yeah, I think on both sides they were concerned about restraining any aggressive activity by the other side. And hockey, like some of the most effective containment strategies was not simply a military issue. Uh, it was a way uh, to try to impress your friends. Uh, 
it could serve in terms of dealings with your adversary simultaneously as a form of uh, psychological warfare and cultural diplomacy. You can sort of try to awe your opponents with how, how dominant, how skilled you are, how dominant your teams are. Uh, but at the same time, their skill and sportsmanship can also win friends uh, across a steep ideological divide. So, like some of the deterrence, some of the deterrent strategies that we might discuss, uh, it, it's a way you're doing a lot of things at the same time. You are relying on psychological and sometimes economic factors uh, to a greater degree than the military. Now, on the Soviet side, the the state was very closely linked with their Olympic program. Uh, the nucleus of their Olympic hockey team played uh, most of the year on the Central Army Club in the Elite League in Moscow. Another uh, nucleus of the Soviet national team was a Moscow club called Dynamo. And people didn't talk about this during the Cold War, but Dynamo was the team of the secret police. Wow. So you had significant state involvement uh, in the program, and particularly where you have that military angle. Uh, the Soviets can simultaneously say, look how peace-loving our military guys are. They play games. They're exceptionally talented sportsmen, and they're also very graceful and sportsmanlike. They play the game at a high level. Uh, one of the problems you run into on in hockey, whichever side of the Iron Curtain you're on, you have a, a sport that's basically played by guys skating on knives with clubs in their hands. Uh, combine that with the, the competitive nature of the game and the sometimes testy kind of things that go on. And it didn't always succeed uh, as a morale booster or a goodwill uh, promoter. But there are many stories of players on both sides of the Iron Curtain uh, who won friends and admirers on the other side. Uh, it's probably the best example is the goaltender Vladislav Tretyak. Listeners uh, old enough will remember his name. He was a star of the Soviet national team from 1972 until the 1984 Olympics. Uh, he helped them to some phenomenal Olympic success. They had great success at world championships in most of Tretyak's career. Tretyak was a player who also starred in a series of detente-era competitions where Canadian pros played the Soviet national mm -hmm. Olympic team or Soviet club teams from the elite league. So he had a number of opportunities to come play in North America to impress the North Americans. Uh, he made his first impression in North America in 1972. There was a big playoff series called the Summit Series, and this matched eight games of Canadian NHL All-Stars, who were known as Team Canada, played the Soviet team. Uh, Trejak was the star goalie for the Soviets. It was a very close series. It came down to the last game. They played four games in Canada, then four games in Moscow. And the series wasn't decided until there were 34 seconds to go 
in the eighth and final game. Paul Henderson became a national hero in Canada by scoring the series clinching goal. He's still a national hero in Canada because of what he did in 72. But the Soviets, it was a remarkable performance by them. They actually outscored the Canadians over the entire course of the series. And Trechak played so well in goal that there was hope in uh, on the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team. They had a goaltender in his 40s uh, who hoped the team would try to sign Vladislav Trechak wow. to come play in North America. And when he got near the end of his career, the Montreal Canadiens drafted him one year, hoping that when the Soviets were done with him from the standpoint of the national team, they'd let him come play a year or two in the NHL. Uh, Valery Karlamov was another great name from that 72 Soviet team who played uh, until he died tragically in a car crash in 1981 at a time when the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs said he could not afford to pay one of his top players was holding out and wanted $125,000 or $150,000, and the Toronto owner said, I can't afford to pay him that. Uh, but he offered the Soviets a million dollars for the opportunity to have <laughs> Karlov play with him. So in this way, you can see that from the Soviet side, it, it's in some ways, I don't know if it's necessarily humanizing Soviet mm -hmm. heroes, but in some ways it's making them... Uh, seem really impressive and kind of friendly in ways that people in North America may want to build closer ties with them. Uh, and I should point out to you, it's not just Canadians. Uh, the general manager of the Boston Bruins apparently contacted Senator Kennedy's office. I haven't been able to find any uh, supporting documentation on this, but there are reports in the 70s the general manager of the Bruins wanted the state, wanted Ted Kennedy's office to encourage the State Department to institute some type of cultural program. And as part of this cultural program, Alexander Yakashev, a big Soviet wing, a uh, phenomenal hockey player, would come play for the Bruins for a year. And the State Department could come up with anybody that they wanted to send back to Russia, and that was going to be the exchange, as the Bruins imagined it. So Soviet players had a way to break down the, this perception of the big red machine, uh, these machine-like athletes who are simply doing the bidding of communism. Uh, at the same time, domestically, uh, you know, a number of the players were on the Red Army Club, so they were Red Army officers. They had a certain ability to project a favorable image of the Red Army at home. Mm -hmm. So you could motivate a certain amount of uh, ideological enthusiasm and loyalty. A lot of times they would join the Communist Party youth group, the Komsomol, uh, as a way to encourage young Soviets basically be like me. Become a good Soviet citizen, a uh, good Russian patriot, a good devotee of the communist system. And then in the North American side, you would find guys who would play so well uh, that they would be admired intensely uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, Bobby Orr was a, a star with the Boston Bruins, uh, typically mentioned one of the two or three greatest hockey players to ever play the game, uh, called the greatest ever by people who actually know what they're talking about, or was a hero in the Soviet Union. 
They greatly admired him, and he kept having knee injuries to keep him out of games against the Soviet Union. And in 1972, when they were negotiating the rosters for the Summit Series, Team Canada versus the Soviet Union, when they were trying to shape the rosters, Orr was injured. It was unclear whether he would be able to play. Ultimately, he was unable to play. But the Soviets actually basically gave Canada a waiver. They could have one more player on their roster if Orr became healthy in time to play in the series. They wanted that badly to be on the ice with him. Uh, in the winter of 1975-76, Central Army came to North America, played four NHL teams. One of them was the Boston Bruins. Again, Orr was injured and couldn't play. But while the Soviets were in Boston Garden, uh, they were given a tour of the place, uh, and observers said it was really weird because these guys walked up to Orr's locker and touched, like, his stick and his <laughs> jersey like they were religious pilgrims uh, at some type of holy site. And that was at a time when... Soviet people in general, and Red Army guys in particular, would never admit to being impressed by anything mm. that came from the United States or from Canada or any of the Western democracies. But they were almost unashamed in their reverence for Bobby Orr. So this would be a, a non-traditional, non-military way to help spread the word in the Soviet Union that Americans, Canadians, other residents of Western capitalist democracies are not the fascist ogres that communist propaganda often portrayed them as. And it was a way to get messages uh, through the Iron Curtain. One of the things that's striking about the Summit series, I think, is that the Soviets sold advertising time or space on the boards in their rink in Moscow uh, because the games were going to be telecast back to Canada and the United States and corporate entities in the U.S. and Canada would pay them money. So no. one of the witticisms people used to talk about during the Cold War is that uh, capitalists would sell you the rope, you, sell the communists the rope they needed to hang them. <laughs> it's become clear to me that the communists would sell the capitalists the advertising time and space they needed to advertise how much better you could live in the West <laughs> than you could under communism. So you find these ways that it's not simple and straightforward like with military containment where you're putting military units in the field and you can relatively easily try to gauge what's a parity and what's equivalence and what's enough to offset any aggressive designs by the other side but it is a way to tell your story and to undermine the other guy's story uh, and it's also a way to try to win friends and influence people. I was just going to say that. <laughs> in neutral countries uh, and sometimes within your own alliance. Uh, some of the most interesting stories about hockey in the Cold War are of hostility between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. And it's nowhere near the same level of hostility. But it's clear that the Americans and the Canadians occasionally have issues 
where things happen on ice that reflect the, the Canadian self-perception that you know, this is our game and you Americans are supposed to take a back seat. And the Americans are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're hockey players too. And it gets even more interesting when you pull the Europeans in because countries like West Germany and Sweden play a style of hockey because the, Olymp the Olympic ice is bigger. It's 15 feet wider. It gives you more more space for skating and playmaking and different angles for passing. The Swedes and the West Germans play a style of play that in a lot of ways is much closer to the Soviets than it is to what the North Americans do. The North Americans play a much more robust, physical, bang around, crash around, dump the puck in, go knock people down style of play. Uh, so at times, the Swedes in particular seem particularly sympathetic to the Soviets in their view of, of international mm. issues, at least as they pertain to hockey, the governance of the International Federation, what should Olympic rules be, how should uh, world tournaments be handled. And then the West Germans, at times they seem very weary of what they see as the roughhouse tactics of Canadians. But there also are occasional situations where West Germany's history comes into play. There was one situation I read about where the Canadian uh, consulate it was describing a game in Europe between a Canadian team and a West German team. It was at the World Championships, and the game had a Czechoslovakian referee. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just look at it in simple terms of Cold War politics, the Czechoslovakian referee has nobody to root for. It's the Canadians, it's the West Germans, they're both part of NATO, they're both in the other alliance. But what happens is the Canadian consulate reports home the Czechoslovakian referee did not call penalties on the Canadians for basically any kind of barbarity they inflicted on the West Germans. Wow. And even said a Canadian referee would not have let the Canadian players get away with as much as the Czechoslovakian referee did, which speaks to some of the issues in the Cold War world where the West Germans, and to a lesser degree the East Germans, were still carrying some of the baggage of Germany in the 30s and early 40s, uh, and a, a hostility uh, that could could appear in interesting ways and interesting times. Uh, sometimes in Warsaw Pact countries, sometimes you'd even see it in, in uh, NATO democracies. And the whole question of East Germany uh, became an issue where the East Germans would, in the early days of the Cold War, the position of the West German government was they would not recognize any country except the Soviet Union that recognized the government of East Germany. The position of okay. the German Federal Republic is we, we are the legitimate government of Germany. We have offered people in the East the opportunity to participate. They have not, but mm -hmm. we're a legitimate democratically elected government. They're a bunch of communist stooges imposed by Moscow. They have no legitimacy, and if you recognize them diplomatically, we're not having anything to do with you. And the East Germans would go to great lengths to secure any kind of recognition that they could, and part of it was in, in, in the 50s into the early 60s, 
the IOC would force the two Germanys to organize a unified German Olympic team. Mm. And I have German in air quotes because there, there was no geopolitical entity known as Germany. There were mm. two German countries. But they would do things like, in hockey, the West German team would play the East German team, like a two out of three set, and whoever won, they would go and represent Germany. And as you might imagine, mm. in, in, particularly in individual sports, high pick teams became a source of endless headaches. But there was a point in the 60s when the East Germans were so happy to have a Canadian hockey team visit East Germany, they accepted the request of the East German of the Canadians to visit Berlin. So they basically took them, and this is after the construction of the Berlin Wall. The East Germans happily took a group of Canadians to East Berlin to see how much worse off East Berlin was than West Berlin in ways the Canadians could not possibly come away from this trip thinking, oh, communism, good idea, we should try this. <laughs> but they were willing to do that because having a Canadian team show up in East Germany implied some form of recognition oh, of East Germany's existence. So even though there was going to be no propaganda payoff in terms of the hockey or the impact on the Canadians, getting an organized group of Canadians to visit East, East Germany was that yeah. important. And we're not even talking about a Canadian national team. This could happen with a club team that was invited to visit Europe and said, why don't you come to East, East Germany while you're here? That's amazing. That's, there's a lot of nuance there. Uh, to briefly turn the topic to the military strategies mm -hmm. um, of deterrence, what are some of the, uh, in your opinion, most successful and least successful policies at establishing a broader deterrence from either from the perspective of the U.S. or mm -hmm. from the Soviet Union? Well, let me, let me look at the American side for you. Uh, and I think in, in, in assessing successful deterrent strategies on the American side. Uh, militarily, I think the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, was a, a relatively effective a way to pull together a group of nations, most of whom were democratic, were capitalist, had a shared sense of value, could attempt to build on an idea of a North Atlantic community that would unite the United States, Canada, Western European countries, and give some hope and promise that as other countries became democratic, this could become something of a home for them. I think in some ways the Marshall Plan was a more successful strategy, even though you're not going to consider this a specifically a military approach. Uh, to some degree, I think your deterrent strategies are most successful uh, when those making the decisions about how to deter the Soviets during the Cold War did not rely solely on military. The military could point. be a piece of the puzzle, but you wanted economically, culturally, socially, uh, you needed to, psychologically, I think was also very important, shoring up European self-confidence that the West European countries would be able to recover from wartime devastation, would be able to restore prosperity, would be able to do so. 
uh, with capitalist economics and uh, political democracy, multi-party, constitutional, rule of law type systems. And you have to remember from the vantage point of the late 40s, before you had World War II, you had a Great Depression. So the capitalist democracies had not done a particularly good job in recent years of providing physical security and economic security and prosperity for their people. So coming up with an approach that would restore the confidence of the Western Europeans, uh, encourage them to rebuild and strengthen, not just their industrial infrastructure and, and other attributes of the economy, but a way of life predicated on multiple parties, political, you know, political discussion and debate, a loyal opposition, a variety of things that, that you may not have gotten or would not have gotten uh, had communist leaders been able to take advantage of the chaos and disarray uh, at a time when there, there were legitimate dangers in 1948 that France and Italy might have voted communist governments into power. Uh, and that was that obviously would, would have to be a serious concern to the United States. Uh, so the Marshall Plan, in part because it's not solely military, uh, and it does benefit from the military shield of NATO. You know, NATO basically shields the countries and lets them know militarily, you're as safe as we can make you, and if anything happens, anything goes sideways, the Americans will be there to bail you out. This provides a, a margin of comfort uh, that helps encourage those uh, people in, in devastated, war-torn Western European countries uh, to try to build a democratic future and to succeed in building it. And then the Marshall Plan provides some economic aid and economic historians will differ over how important that aid was from an economic standpoint but it also was a powerful signal from the United States. Unlike the years after World War I, when the U.S. government did what it could to minimize its involvement in European affairs, uh, to encourage American businessmen and mostly try to keep the U.S. government out of the way, uh, that was a powerful statement by the Truman administration that Eisenhower kept up, that we're not going away this time. We're, we're, we're committed to Europe, we're committed to your future, your security, your safety. Uh, and that, I think, was, was a powerfully effective way uh, to, to deter the Soviets, to protect the security of the United mm -hmm. States and Canada uh, and most of the nations in Western Europe. Uh, in terms of a deterrence where it failed badly, I think you would be hard-pressed to come up with a better example of a bad application of deterrence than Vietnam. You had a situation where the U.S. government, I think, was unclear on who or what it was trying to deter. Were you trying to deter communism in general? Was it China? Was it the Soviet Union? Uh, by 1964-65, it should be pretty obvious to people paying attention that the Soviets and Chinese don't have that cheerful, mm -hmm. happy yeah. alliance they hoped they might have in the early days of the People's Republic of China. Uh, in addition, it's, you've got a situation that is overwhelmingly 
reliant on the military. Uh, the United mm -hmm. States does make various efforts economically to try to help South Vietnam, but when you have a situation where, in theory, the United States is trying to help the people of South Vietnam to develop a nationalist, non-communist alternative to the communist regime uh, that's established in Hanoi, you're not going to develop a nationalist, non-communist, distinctly Vietnamese nationalist alternative to Ho Chi Minh and the communists with a U.S. Army. You know, the, the very fact that the Americans took over the war effort meant that they were basically trying, I mean, it's, it's an almost definitional thing. The very thing you're trying to do makes impossible. What you're tr the way you yeah. go about it makes impossible what you are trying to accomplish. So you have a strategy that is supposedly the result of careful, rational analysis of the, the approach to systems analysis that McNamara brought to the Defense Department, this precise calibration of defense resources to meet the, the threat in question, uh, that you're theoretically going to be using a range of political, economic, military and other assets to try to shape the situation and you end up relying almost entirely on the military. Mm. You do so in a way that weakens your force structure in Europe, leaves you neglecting your nuclear force structure, uh, leaves you so overextended if there is another serious geopolitical issue anywhere in the world that requires U.S. military action, you're probably going to be unable to do uh, anything unless it's it's some tiny, almost unimaginably small situation. Uh, there were decisions made in other parts of the world, uh, particularly I think the subcontinent of Asia, where U.S. abandoned uh, its long-standing position of trying to be something of a neutral broker. And if you look in the decisions uh, in South Asia and in other other policy situations, you have the U.S. making decisions not because it makes, our, our leaders are not making decisions because this is the best policy for the United States. It's because this is, we're dealing with this emergency mess in Vietnam and trying to figure out how to extricate ourselves from it. And the crowning indication of what a disaster uh, for deterrence, the Vietnam War, uh, was is on display when uh, American leaders try to get the Soviet Union involved in pressuring North Vietnam to accept a negotiated peace uh, to facilitate American withdrawal. So if the entire justification of your war effort is to try to contain the Soviets <laughs> through containing their proxy in Hanoi, the fact that you're going to Moscow saying, would you please help us out of this situation uh, is a demonstration of just what a disaster that was uh, in terms of trying to assess a deterrence policy. So uh, taking that uh, point about deterrence as kind of more of a broader grand strategy than just a military uh, objective, how would you say or what implications would that have for some situations today? You could take a specific one if you want to. 
Well, the things that I think you want to think about when you're thinking about deterrence, uh, and it may be we're going to be dealing with deterrence situations in North Korea or Iran soon. Uh, deterrence may be an analogy for the way the U.S. relates to China. I mean, one of the things that I think, looking at the history of deterrence, is you have to make sure you have a strategy that makes sense for the actual situation you're dealing with. To say, China is now a large, populous nation with a reasonably sophisticated, advanced military, most likely nation in the world to become a serious existential threat to the United States at some point. Uh, well, what worked in the Cold War with the Russians, we should just trot that out and try it again. It, it's a different era. It's a different circumstance. Uh, I'm unpersuaded that deterrence and Cold War imagery make any sense in thinking about current day U.S. relations with China. Yeah. Uh, so the, the first thing to do is make sure, do you have uh, a situation where deterrence is what you should be looking at? And should you be trying to come up with deterrence strategies? Uh, related to that is the question of thinking about what worked in the Cold War and what didn't. And a lot of times for Americans in the post-Cold War world, thinking about the Cold War can boil down to, we won, hooray, what's up next? And thinking analytically about what worked, what didn't, uh, what costs might have been avoided, what blunders might have been avoided, what things that did we not understand uh, that we would have selected different policies and things would have gone a lot better. Uh, these are things that you have to think about. Uh, John Lewis Gaddis has written extensively on the Cold War. Uh, one of his books, Strategies of Containment, is one that I use in the course on the history of U.S. national security policy that you're familiar with. One of the things he talks about is the concept of transferability. What worked in the past that might work in the present day or in the future, and turning attention to what is transferable, uh, what did work at a reasonable cost, uh, what can we argue worked, but really we paid way too much for that and, and don't want to take that as a model of how to proceed. These are the kind of things that you need to think about. And one of the things that I think is most crucial in, in Vietnam helps lead us into this, is it is so tempting for Americans to look at international situations and think of them either in American terms or analogize them to prior events in American history and to not think about these situations in terms of what's the local situation, what's the history, what's the, what are the traditions, what is the dispute? Where did it come from? So often in American history, our biggest disasters arise because we don't understand the people who are being most affected and impacted in the, in the country or in the situation where we are trying to deal. So an understanding of local factors and local actors combined with a real clear-eyed analytical look at what happened in the past, what worked, didn't work. This is what we need to do to figure out 
if there are countries out there that the best way to deal with them, Iran, for example, or North Korea, if the best way to deal with one of these countries is through a strategy of deterrence, then we need to think hard and analytically about what is transferable from the past and what are the local situations and circumstances uh, that we're dealing with. Uh, and part of that in North Korea is we are dealing with a country that was once invaded by the United States with a leadership from the same family and ideology of the current leadership. And in the war that was part of, uh, there was extensive devastation and destruction inflicted on North Korea by the United States. Uh, and that is going to impact the way whoever's in charge in North Korea thinks about the United States and looks at the United States. Uh, and there are a lot of things that obviously we don't know about North Korea that are, that are still getting sorted out. Uh, but an attempt at some calm, clear-minded, level-headed thinking is, is going to be a useful way to think about the situation uh, and a way that I, I think we can try to, try to bring this discussion to a close is, is I would mention one of the things when you're talking about deterrence and containment. Um, the U.S. was trying to contain the Soviets in the Cold War. At a certain point in the Cold War, containment seemed to become an end unto itself. The initial theorist of containment, George Kennan, argued the purpose of containment in the context of U.S.-Soviet relations should be to try to change the international behavior not the domestic regime, but change the international behavior of the Soviet Union. And then once you have changed, once they've changed their international behavior, once they are no longer reflexively causing you problems and trying to seize on trouble spots around the world, uh, when they have changed the way they do things, then you negotiate some agreements, the Cold War ends, and you move into the next phase of your relations. There were points in the Cold War when it was clear containment had become the end unto itself. Uh, and I think one of the things, I know Reagan is not always a big favorite of historians, but one thing that I think Reagan got right is he was in the right place at the right time, but he recognized that when Gorbachev started changing the Soviet approach to foreign policy, that containment, Cold War politics, they'd, they'd serve their purpose and Reagan even used the phrase, you know, it was a different era. But once you had a Soviet leadership that changed their approach, then your, then your approach is you try to bring all of this to an end, develop new policies suitable to the changing circumstances. So wherever the Americans might be, uh, might feel deterrence or containment is a wise policy in any future situation. Remember, it's typically, you want to be thinking not just, we're, in the short term, maybe all you can do is contain them. Mm. But understand, longer term, bigger picture, you have to be doing containment and deterrence with the idea that there's going to be some future change, yeah. at which point you can, you can alter your policies accordingly. Okay. Thank you. Those are some great, great insights into Thank you, Nick. sport. Really fascinating. Thank you, Professor. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu 
forward slash NDISC forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.